Church family, let's continue with that same thought. For his praise to ever be on our lips can manifest itself in us singing about his goodness, but it can also manifest itself in us reading and learning about his goodness. Have you ever wanted to hear the audible voice of God? I have never heard the audible voice of God, but I can assure you the closest thing is to read your Bible out loud. This is the Word of God. And so I'd like to do that this morning out of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you have a copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I really encourage you to bring to church as a good habit, a good example to your family, a good discipline in your life, or you have an app on your phone that you like to access, that is certainly the Word of God as well. It comes in all shapes, sizes, prints, and forms. But whether you're using an app on a device or a printed copy, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like for you to find chapter 9. For those of you who are guests, I know that we have welcomed you, but I welcome you into this book. We've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians for several months. We've done several series. And last week, we began a brand new series when we kicked into chapter 8 called Freely Bound. Spiritual freedom is a really big deal to God. It's a big deal to God because he speaks about it from Genesis to Revelation. To be free from the chains of sin, to be free from the fear of death, to be free from an eternity in hell, but rather be free to live with God forever in heaven are the themes of redemption. We could spend all morning simply reading verses that speak to spiritual freedom. Verses like I shared with you last week. The psalmist says it this way, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. Now let me just stop right here. This is a semicolon. When I start past the semicolon and I get to the period, if I read that and I don't hear 73 amens, we are not having church this morning. I'm just prepping you. Early service did terrible. I chastised them, then they did better. Don't be the early service. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Thank you. Freedom is something we celebrate. Jesus spoke about freedom in John chapter 8, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Just a few verses later, he says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The apostles pick up on this. Paul, in writing to a legalistic church in the the churches of the Galatia, which was an area, modern-day Turkey, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not Submit again to a yoke of slavery. He would go on to write in the same book, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom or do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For one, he would say to the Roman church, for one who has died has been set free from sin. He, he would go on to say it in other ways. I think about 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, Peter, being Peter, recognized we could always use spiritual freedom in the wrong way, which is why he wrote one of the most power-packed, concise verses about Christian citizenship in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. I don't have to say it, but I'm going to say it again. Spiritual freedom is a big 
deal, and we want to be people who are free in Christ. But how do we balance our freedom against our obligation to other Christians, especially in areas that we call the gray, not the black and white areas, but areas where Christians lovingly can agree to disagree. What do we do when we have a right in Christ to participate in some activity that we don't see as sinful, that does not violate God's word, but our participation in this activity or our choice to not participate in this activity could cause others around us who may be weaker, who may have a different faith journey, who may have a different set of influences in their previous life, their life before Christ, to stumble. And as I pointed out to you last week, as we dealt with the entirety of chapter 8 on a message specifically about gray areas, if you weren't here to hear it or if you didn't watch it online, I would encourage you to listen to it. It's available in every platform that you can listen to anything else. But if you watched me last week and if you listened last week, you know that ultimately we know the answer is rooted in we struggle when pride gets in the way and love is always the solution. Pride is often the problem when you see Christians declaring their right in Christ to do something, to say something, to participate in some activity that is causing other Christians to stumble. And love, love for one another is always the way we navigate through the gray, through the limbo. In fact, the title of the sermon was Loving in Limbo. What do we do when there's an issue? We don't know exactly what is right or wrong, but we have a peace in our heart about our decision, yet our decision causes a weaker brother, a younger sister, someone more vulnerable than us to stumble in the face. We do what is most loving for them. We place our desire to love them and build them up above our own freedom in Christ. That's a summary of last week. And I needed to give you that to set you up for this week. Because it is the Apostle Paul who is teaching us this because he's dealing with a church divided over a number of issues and yet the root cause of the division is that they are not loving. Rather, they're being spiritually prideful. So Paul chooses to get real personal. Now there are four types of sermons that you preach to your church if you're the pastor. Some messages are motivational. In fact, hopefully all are. You know, he's not really doing his job if he doesn't motivate you to go out and live for the Lord. So in essence, all of them should be but some of them are really motivational. You know, go. Some messages are confrontational. Sometimes we come to a passage like we did in a previous series called Do You Not Know that was dealing with the difficult and sensitive subject of sexual scandal in the church and Paul confronts them over their sin and for those who had not committed the sexual sin over their toleration of the sin. And so sometimes a pastor comes to the pulpit and he knows that it's a hard word to confront the church over sin in their life, in his life, or in the life of those in the text that can then be translated into confronting our own sin. There are messages like that, and you've always given me the freedom to preach those hard messages in love. Some messages, I'll be honest with you, are purely informational. You're just teaching God's people truths about God from God's Word. But when we learn about truths about our God, we also learn about ourselves because we're made in his image. And then there are some messages that are affirmational. 
Meaning they're a passage of scripture that the pastor comes to and his people are already doing it. I mean, you're killing it in this area. I mean that in a positive way. You're doing well in this area. So when he comes to those passages, he has a choice to make. He could skip it and go, well, they got this. But then I remind myself that I need to hear affirmation just as much as I need to hear information, just as much as I need to hear confrontation, and certainly as much as I need to hear motivation, I need to know when I'm affirmed by God's Word. Can I just tell you, before I tell you the title of the sermon, you need to be affirmed in this Word. This Word is here, and I'm preaching it because as a line-by-line, verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book preacher, I'm going to deal with the next paragraph. There's no wondering. If you want to know what's next week, just read the next paragraph. We're going to go through it verse by verse. I am obligated to place myself under the authority of the Word and to preach this passage. But I preach it from a place of affirmation saying everything I'm about to teach you corporately as a church, you do so very faithfully. Now, are you ready for my title? Paying Preachers. Now you see why I set that title up. Now you see why that title needed a little packaging, a little context. I had to soften you a little bit. Can you imagine if you just took this screenshot? (laughs) You could rip me apart on social media. Well, I went to Church at the Mill. We visited, and all that guy talked about was how much money he needed you to pay. That is not the message. The message, though, is that The Scripture is not silent about anything that is important to the function of the church. And you may think, man, you know what? I I believe Pastor DJ is going to teach us this passage correctly. I'm sure I'll learn something. But I came today, man, I needed a word from God about my life. I, I don't need a sermon about what they pay the preacher or compensating the ministry staff. Let me remind you something. Number one, every word of God is for you. But number two, if you'll open your heart, you'll see something. The whole foundation of this message is because Paul is acting out chapter 8, verse 9. Look with your Bible to chapter 8, verse 9. Let me show you. Chapter 8, verse 9, it was in last week's message. This is what he says. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, if you were to condense chapter 8 into one verse, this is what he's saying. Whether or not you're free in Christ to do something, you're never free in Christ to do anything that you know is going to cause another brother or sister in your circle of influence to stumble in their faith seriously. Paul's not nitpicking here. He's not talking about trying to live your life in a glass bubble or or try to live your life so that you never in any way, in any shape, or in any form do something that some Christian somewhere might disagree with. He's saying when you come into the life of someone who's growing in the faith and there's a real issue in their heart pertaining to a behavior, pertaining to a choice of language, pertaining to a choice of entertainment, pertaining to a decision to make, an association to involve themselves in, and you have a choice to forego your freedom for their good, forego your freedom. In other words, you're free to give up your rights in Christ if it causes another person to stumble. Paul then turns to chapter 9 and gives us a living example. Paul's personal example here 
provides principles for the whole church. He makes a choice. What is his choice? Paul has every right to be compensated, to be cared for financially by the church in Corinth. He served them for several years. He planted them. He ministered there. But he chose not to receive a dime of the offering for his own needs. And in doing so, some of his enemies said, well, he ain't even enough of an apostle for us to pay him. I heard he doesn't even take any money. Others said, why, why does Paul insist on not allowing us to help him with his expenses? And so in dealing with this conflict and this controversy, Paul says, yeah, that's my choice. But in making this choice, I want you to know what I'm not saying is that it's wrong to take care of the men and women who take care of your soul. In fact, the second half of the chapter, which we'll deal with next week, really unpacks Paul's thinking about his own decision to forego compensation. But the first half is Paul saying, even though I'm choosing not to receive payment for my ministry, I want you to know it's a choice I'm making. You're not making it for me because as a man of God called by God to serve his church, it is right and good for me to receive the money that I need to support my family as I serve this congregation. This is what Paul would say. And so really and truly, if we were to look just at the first 12 verses, I, I want to tell you why it's a good thing to take care of those who take care of our souls spiritually, but I want to do so by re-reminding you, you do this very well. But this won't be the last church you're in. Students, this won't be the last church you're a part of. There are some of you who may live here the rest of your life and never leave. Selfishly, we would love to have you be a part of Church at the Mill until the Lord calls you home, if that is his will. But all of you, at some point, will find your way into another church. Some of you are being called in the ministry, and you will go lead other churches. So whether or not our church does this well, and it does, it's important for the whole body of Christ to understand the principles for the church universally so that when given the opportunity to speak truth into other churches, when given the opportunity to join or be a part or to support ministries elsewhere, you have a foundation theologically as to why this is important. I'll give it to you in three simple answers. Why? Number one, because it's permitted by the Lord. It's a part of the Lord's plan. Paul's title is not my title. I'm the pastor of Church at the Mill. Paul is an apostle. There is a difference, yet the apostolic authority of the church now comes through what is written by the apostles. So the ones communicating what is written by the apostles follow in the lineage of spiritual leaders. The first thing Paul had to do is to say, I could be paid because I'm an apostle. And to show the readers this, some were questioning his apostolic authority, his status, he asked some rhetorical questions. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, he knew some people were questioning. At least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. There are two criteria to be an apostle. Number one, you have to have literally been with or seen the Lord Jesus. We know this because when Judas committed suicide, 
after betraying Jesus, Judas who sold Jesus out for 30 pieces. So Judas needed to be replaced. In Acts chapter 1, when they're looking for a replacement for Judas, this is what is said. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That's a great verse describing the criteria for the original apostles. So you may say, well, if that is the criteria, Paul was not there. That is true. Paul had not been a part of the life of Jesus and had never seen Jesus until his conversion. And Paul's miraculous conversion happened in an earth-changing way when the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision on the road to Damascus. And when we think about that vision, we go back to his calling. In fact, when he is miraculously saved, God tells a man named Ananias to go minister to him. Ananias says in Acts chapter 9, but Ananias, but Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is basically saying, you want me to go minister to him? and end up arrested, end up persecuted, imprisoned, maybe even stoned to death like Stephen. When Stephen was stoned to death, guess who held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen to death? It was a young man named Saul. Verse 15, but the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So clearly, three different times in the book of Acts, Paul says, I'm an apostle because I've seen the Lord. The second criteria is that the apostolic authority is on the man and it is seen in the fruit of his ministry. When the early church fathers were collecting the scriptures, in other words, it's not like Jesus walked around with a leather-bound Bible like this. Much of the Bible was being lived out and written about him. And then within the first generation of Jesus resurrecting, the apostles wrote the remaining parts of the Bible. John, writing the last book of the Bible, while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Revelation in itself says, no one should add or take away to this book. So we know it was finished. When the early church fathers were determining which books were inspired, which books were divinely given to us by God, which books were inerrant, which books were clearly blessed by the Holy Spirit, that was the two criteria. One, was it written by an apostle, someone who had seen Jesus directly? And two, has it been affirmed through the Holy Spirit using the book in other people's lives? And very early on, the 66 books you have in your hand were the books that received agreement across the church as it made its way from the Middle East into the world that we know today. And because of that, there are no more apostles. That's why we don't run around calling ourselves an apostle. The apostles died. And when they died, the scripture was completed. Their time was done. So too did the prophets of the Old Testament. Which is now why we have men and women who are called to go to the nations to make known Christ. People with the gift of evangelism, evangelist. And God calls out spiritually qualified men to lead local churches to teach them the word of God. Those are pastors and their primary function is to administer the teaching of the word. 
which is exactly why in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul is talking about how church should work, he says, and he gave the apostles, they wrote the New Testament, they're all dead now, and he gave the prophets, they wrote the Old Testament, they're all dead now, and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers, this word in the original language is one, shepherd teachers. So people who get the gospel out and people who care for those who are saved. And what do these leaders do? The dead ones and the living ones. The ones who wrote the word and the ones who minister in the word. They equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So Paul is basically saying, I have the right to demand that you care for my needs as I minister to you. Now, some people in Corinth questioned Paul. You know what they said about him over in 2 Corinthians? I love this line. For they say his letters are weighty and strong. We would agree with that. We've spent a lot of time in Paul's letters. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Now, I don't know. I will not have his Paul's letters. I've never seen him. I'll see him one day. He'll be in his glorified state. But apparently, he wasn't much to look at. He didn't have a lot of charisma. Some people connect this back to the thorn in his flesh he prayed about when he shared about the thorn in his flesh. Some people think that he was physically ill. Some uh, uh, argue that it may have been blindness that was ailing him. We know he had been shipwrecked and beat on several occasions, and that does not do a body good. And so physically he didn't have this magnificent presence, and apparently his oration didn't grab people the way some did. That's a good word for us to remember in this personality-driven environment we live in. Just because someone has amazing charisma or the ability to orate, you better make sure there's some substance to what they say. I see a lot of leaders that are a mile wide in charisma and an inch deep in conviction. We want to make sure that what we say is done in a dynamic and charismatic and clear and exciting and passionate way. And so we want to utilize everything we know about oration. But we want to make sure that what we say is not what we think, but what does the Word of God teach. And so Paul makes this argument. He says, am I not free? Could I not ask these things? Look how it happens in verse 4. He says, this is my defense, verse 3, to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? He's not talking about partying or alcohol. He's just talking about water and food. He's saying, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? In other words, should you not be able to support my family? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Caiaphas? Or, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? See, Paul and Barnabas had decided not to take it. But Paul was saying, that's not because I'm not worthy of it. It's because I'm making a choice in my freedom. Now, I don't have time this morning, but the Lord even affirms this. If you have your Bible open, just scroll down to verses 13 and 14. We'll deal with those next week as well. But in verses 13 and 14, he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, get their food from the temple, that's the Old Testament model, the tribe of Levi, and an altar and share in the sacrificial offerings? Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So this is a part of God's plan. Now let's talk about the elephants in the room. There are two extremes. One extreme 
is to reject this and be unorganized and basically say, I don't think anybody who says they're a man or a woman of God ought to ever ask anything from the church. And, and to be honest with you, I don't even like the structure and the organization of churches that have personnel budgets and compensation packages and, and award their pastors and those who serve faithfully. Uh, I, 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 rather, I just, I just want to be with a group of people and talk about God's Word. If you wake up tomorrow with a toothache, you go into somebody who's been to dental school, Your teeth are important, but they're not as important as your soul. You do not have to have a theological degree to know and love the Lord Jesus. In fact, he did not come to make theologians. He came to make disciples. But if you're going to go through the process of getting out of bed and coming and hearing the Word of God, you want to go hear the Word of God from someone who's given their life to communicating the Word of God. Just like you want a brain surgeon who's given her life to studying neurology, just like you want to talk to a counselor who's given their life to applying the truths of God's word in the counseling relationship, just like you want a realtor, realtor that knows every form you need at closing because there's 6,294 of them, and you're going to nod that you read them, but you ain't read nothing. I'm not arguing that pastors are professionals. we got to stay away from that. I am arguing that it is a good thing that the Lord knew that there would be some who would give their life and their training to caring for the souls of his people. Sadly, though, that's not the extreme I'm fearful of. I don't fear any of you rejecting organized church or you wouldn't be sitting here. It's the false gospel of America known as the prosperity gospel. This is not a sermon against the prosperity gospel, though every sermon should be. But the prosperity gospel is normally propagated by personalities who are charlatans. They're false teachers. They're false prophets. They'll be held accountable. They're not going to heaven. They're not saved. They're not born again. They're false. And they're leading people to, to destruction ultimately because they place in their mind the prospering in this life as the ultimate proof of the gospel. Now, we know we have a good, good father who provides for our needs, and I can take this Bible just as you can, and I can prove that he gives so much to us and that he's so kind and that every meal is a blessing from him. And many of us experience a life where we not only have our needs, we're able to enjoy some of our wants as well. But I do not have a Bible that guarantees you and I to know and love Jesus is to prosper physically and financially in this life. I actually have a Bible that says the opposite. That God has the right to call his children to be blessed in abundance, but he has the right to call us to suffer for his glory. The prosperity gospel knows not that because they know not their Bibles. What they know is a twisted religion built on greed and the propagators of it have to be wealthy in order for their theology to make sense. Nobody's going to go listen to a poor prosperity preacher. And so we've seen those terrible extreme examples. I don't want to live in that world. But I also don't want to live in this world where we reject the caring for men and women in ministry. We want to live in chapter 9's world. And this is the truth, that this is how God designed it. But secondly, and very quickly... It's also good because it's the pattern of all labor. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, this is what Paul says. He gives us three examples, a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. Look at verse 7. 
Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Every one of those veterans that stood a few moments ago, at one time or another, they were compensated. I'm not suggesting they were paid what they're worth. They were probably underpaid, but they were compensated. And in addition to the compensation they received from serving in our armed services, they were also cared for. You know, three hots and a cot. Their meals, their barracks, the places where they trained were provided for them. Why? Because while we understand sometimes it has to be voluntary and sometimes there are great militias that rise up, in wartime we have to take care of a man or a woman's basic needs in order to create a fighting force to defend the welfare of a country. Well, this is true in Rome as well. Every former Roman soldier that was a part of the church in Corinth knew that they were paid by Rome to serve as a soldier. What you do is good, but it needs to be returned with the needs or with the means to meet your needs. But it's not just in soldier or in warfare. Look what he says in verse 7. However, not all possess the knowledge, or excuse me, yeah, I read verse 7, chapter 8. I'm sorry, let's go to chapter 9. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Baptist, notice he said eating any of its fruit. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? And who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? It's just a basic principle. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing sinful. A man or a woman of God is not being sinful or greedy to expect to benefit from the people they lead so that they can provide for their family. The final one is even more elementary. It's a principle from the law. So Paul goes Old Testament. Look what he says beginning in verse 9. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? And then Paul does what only an apostle can do. He takes an Old Testament passage that probably was not originally meant to be applied to preachers, but he applies the principle of the passage to preachers, and he can do that because he's Paul. This is what he says. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox. Now, I'm not saying your pastor's an ox. But you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. It is for is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Paul says, he didn't put that in there for the oxen. He put it in there for the principle. Here's the principle. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. You came to church by driving down Anderson Mill Road. It's not named after the church. Our original name was named after the road, Anderson Mill Road Baptist Church. We couldn't afford a billboard, so we changed it to the church at the mill. But it was named Anderson Mill Road Baptist Church because the first piece of property the church bought was on Anderson Mill Road. Anderson Mill Road was named after Anderson's Mill still there today. It's being restored. You can see it if you go out of the church parking lot and hang a left. And Anderson's Mill is a historically important place for Spartanburg County because it was the first place a public hearing was ever held in the late 1700s. A first place. When this was considered wilderness and they were governing it from Charleston, they sent a sheriff and a coroner to every upstate region. We got our sheriff and our coroner, I guess because you had to live right and die right. We got our sheriff and our coroner and they had public hearings at Anderson's Mill. It's why it's being restored today. It's why it's a historical figure. It's why people go and visit the area. So, why is it a mill? Because, or why is it there? 
because of the river. The river turned the water wheel. The water wheel then, in fact, turned the mechanism of the mill, and it was used to grind grain. We use this even today. Every time you flip on your light in certain areas, you flip on electricity made by the turning of massive turbines, and they're either turned through uh, uh, nuclear energy, through hydroelectric energy. The turning creates the opportunity to make electricity through magnetic force. Well, the turning of a gristmill, the turning of two large stones in the ancient world required an animal, a beast of burden. And so an oxen would be tied and he would walk in a circle and turn the mill. And the principle is, let him eat some of it. He's exhibiting power and energy as he turns. Let him have sustenance from the work he does. He quickly switches to people. He says the thresher and those who plants deserve that. And then Paul drops the same principle into the spiritual life of the church. I'll close with verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? He says it this way in Galatians 6. He says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now let me get to the affirmation part. I didn't preach that message because you don't do it. You do it so faithful and so well. So how do you apply this passage? One thing you do is you don't sing Jesus paid it all. We need you to continue to be generous and kind and gracious. But I want you to think about it in three ways. Number one, if you are a church member, be grateful for men and women who serve you. I am one of dozens who serve you on this church staff. Typically, the person on the stage gets way more love than he deserves. Be grateful for all the men and women who serve you and who have ever served you in ministry. And be generous to them. Be grateful and be generous to the church. When you put your offering in, whether it be direct draft, whether it be online, whether it be through a giving box, a portion of that is not just to support me and my family. We support missionaries all over the world. You're taking part in that when you give to this church. So be grateful and be generous. Now, if you ever find yourself in church leadership where you're making some of those decisions, perhaps you're serving on a finance committee or you're with a group of people who are navigating decisions, then the call is to be generous, take care of the men and women of God who serve your church, but be wise with the finances. So, so on average, churches spend about half to 65% of their budget on personnel. People are our greatest investment. They also are where we get our greatest return. We want to keep that number as low as possible. CADM, it's an acronym, Church at the Mill. CADM is 48%, which is low for a church our size. And announced last week we're going to add a campus at Lake Cooley. You know what that requires? A staff. We're building that staff right now. It'll be a small staff at first, three or four people. But even when we build that staff, it'll put us right at about 52%. That's a great position for a church our size. The risk of large churches is that their personnel grow so large that they become focused on trying to make the numbers work. So we fight to keep that down. We mobilize volunteers and we serve and wear different hats. Typically dying churches or struggling churches see the percentage of personnel increase 
exponentially in their budget. Basically, if the numbers go down and the membership goes down and the giving goes down and the missions go down, the last thing churches want to do is lay people off or cut people's salaries so the personnel percentage becomes inordinately high and this is a telltale sign of a church that's in decline or dying. It's one of the reasons why we still try to fight to keep that number right at 50%. So you have to be wise about that. And finally, what I would say for those of you who serve the church vocationally and those of you young people who are going to serve the church in ministry, be grateful to serve a group of people who will care for you and be worth it. Don't be lazy. It may look like dress shoes, but treat it like work boots. Work and serve. If you serve a church that's healthy, that church will always take care of you. You. There is an epidemic right now. The state of Georgia just released this. There are 800 empty pulpits in the Georgia Baptist Convention. 800 churches looking for pastors. There are over 200 in South Carolina this morning. Every friend of mine who went the route of academia, who's teaching in the seminaries, every one of those tell me, DJ, our number one problem is, is we got nobody coming to school that wants to pastor churches. There is an epidemic, a need for young men to respond to pastor and for young men and women to respond to do ministry and to lead. There is a need for that. So Church of the Mill wants to change that. We want to call out the call. We want to encourage young people to prayerfully consider a life of ministry. We don't want to call them to ministry just like you don't pay me to preach. You don't pay me to preach. God called me to preach. I'm going to preach the rest of my life. You just compensate me so that I can be your pastor. And that I can do what God's called me to do in this community. And that's true for every staff member. And as we raise up the next generation, I want to challenge them that it is an incredibly rewarding career. But it has to be a calling. But in order to do that, I also want to show them that there are churches you can go serve that will be hard, that will be difficult, that will require a lot of time. But they are the most rewarding experience of your life. I was thinking about you and reflecting on that. I feel like I'm at halftime. Tomorrow's my 45th birthday. I'll be 45. I'm not going to make 90. Look at me. I'm just not. If you're 89, you are. I'm not trying to discourage you. You look good. But I won't make 90. But I also feel like I'm about halfway through my ministry as the senior pastor here. I feel like in 20 years, in my early to mid-60s, I, I want very much to raise up young men that will stand in this place. You'll slap the name of emeritus on me. I'll sit in the back with a spirit of criticism. <laughs> but the point is, is that I've been thinking a lot about being halfway. Halfway in life. Halfway in ministry. I'm only halfway in raising kids. But halfway. And then I thought about this sermon, and it was such a reminder of me to me. So obviously, if you're a Christian, the most grateful thing in your life is your salvation. And that's not just a Sunday school answer. I, 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 I'm grateful to wake up saved every day. Secondly, of course I'm grateful to spend my life with my best friend, my wife. Third, obviously I'm grateful to be the father of my children. But for me, fourth, in the spirit of thanksgiving, is that I am so grateful to have had the privilege of being your pastor and to have walked in here at 25 years old, 19 years ago this month, two and a half years of marriage under my belt and a three-week-old baby, and for you to love me 
and to throw your arms open and to provide every spiritual, every physical, every emotional need we could ever want. And while I have the privilege of standing on the stage, I promise you I speak for every staff member in saying you do that to every one of our leaders in such an amazing way. So while I will always challenge you, be affirmed this morning for the loving, kind, and generous church that you are. So I want to give you one assignment. In the spirit of thanksgiving, I want you to find one man or woman of God who serves the church in vocational ministry. That's their job. Who's not a senior pastor. It's not for me. I, I don't need anything. And I want you to bless them this week. I'm not going to define it. I don't know what that means for you. Some of you may say, Pastor, I don't even have a dime to give them. But you can text them and say, I appreciate the way you lead my child's preschool ministry. I appreciate you the way you lead our worship ministry. Thank you for the way you care about our facility. Thank you for the cleanliness of our small group room. You find somebody who's on our staff and you bless them. Might be a gift card. Might be a cash offering. You do something to bless a minister or a ministry staff member of the gospel this week. And as you do that, you do it in the spirit of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Your generosity helps us reach people. Some of those people want to meet you today. I want to conclude by asking Jared McNeely, our Connections pastor, to come up on stage. And as he does, he's going to introduce some of our newest members.